And good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you. Well, Wednesday this week was Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday, uh, as many of you will know, is the start of the, the period leading up to Easter, known traditionally in the Christian calendar as Lent. And the idea that sparked uh, the, uh, the thought behind this current series, which we're about to start on today as we lead up to Easter this year, actually came from a moment uh, on Easter last year. And it all happened with a game of Monopoly. Now, normally uh, I'm not allowed to play Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly brings out my bad side, um, I confess to you this morning. So I am under a Monopoly ban. Anybody else have a board game that brings out their bad side? Oh, anybody else have a ban, a board game ban? Uh, what, what, what is it? What's yours? Scrabble. Okay. <laughs> There's a story there, but we won't go there now. Uh, Risk. Anyone find something like a strategy game like Risk is a bit dangerous to familial harmony? Uh, well, actually, Risk's no problem for me. Settlers, Catan, those strategy games, cards, Bananagrams, Scrabble, uh, not, not a problem. But Monopoly draws out my dark side. And so uh, Louise and I, my wife and I, realised very early in our marriage that to safeguard our relationship and maintain harmony in our home, uh, Monopoly was literally off the table for us. But we were away uh, last Easter with some friends from Melbourne. Now, they'd just been let out of lockdown, so they were keen to clear out and catch up. So we all headed up to Port Stephens, uh, and we spent the Easter long weekend up there. And all weekend, uh, the kids, uh, their family and our family, they'd been sort of begging us to play Monopoly. And the other grown-ups finally relented, and I did the full disclosure uh, of the risks of ruining a perfectly good friendship um, by proceeding. But nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, we, um, we ventured into the dark and played Monopoly. And uh, actually, I, I'm proud and pleased to report that uh, I, I didn't succumb to the darkness on this occasion. It wasn't because, really because my better self prevailed. It's because I was kind of saved from descending into darkness by a moment that kind of struck me like a match in the middle of playing Monopoly. Uh, don't know what would have happened otherwise, but one of our friends who was there uh, was 14 at the time. And to protect her identity, uh, because we're live streaming and recording this, I'll, I'll call her Marley. And Marley was talking as someone was passing go and collecting $200. Uh, Marley was talking about how her friends at school, none of them identify with the Christian faith or indeed any faith. And we were just chatting about this. And she went on to say that actually it was, it was more than that. It wasn't that they just didn't connect with the church or the Christian faith in any way. They were actively hostile to the Christian faith. In fact, sometimes, she said, they'd say to her, how can you be a Christian when Christians hate everyone so much? 
when Christians hate everyone so much. Now, as it turned out, the game kind of did take a dark turn, but I wasn't involved. It was Marley and her dad who ended up in this kind of loggerheads because I was still stuck on this moment when Marley had said this. And the irony of us at Easter, a celebration of the love of God made manifest on the cross of Christ. And the Christian faith was known, at least in Marley's circle, as something which caused people to hate. The gravity of that moment has stuck with me since that time. Now, whether their perception is right or wrong, it's a powerful perception. And it's also a pervasive perception in our world today, because sadly, Marley's friends are not alone. In 2017, uh, a global Ipsos poll surveyed people in a range of different countries around the world. And they asked them this question. Now, we could quibble with the way this is posed, etc. But they asked this question. Do you agree with the statement, religion causes or does more harm than good in the world? And in the US, 39% of respondents agreed with the statement. In the UK, it was a lot worse. It was 61% of respondents agreed that religion caused more harm than good in the world. And again, we could go into definitions. What are people thinking when they say religion, when they answer this, etc. But let's take it on face value at least, because the results were even more dramatic in Australia where 63% of respondents agreed with that statement. Sounds like Marley is not alone, or her friends are not alone. In other words, close to two-thirds of Australians polled agreed that religion does more harm than good in the world. Well, how about you? Maybe you're a visitor here today or with us online. Maybe you're here under, under sufferance. And, and maybe you're thinking, yep, I'm with them. I'm with that majority. Or maybe, like me, you're struck by the, the irony and, in many ways, the sadness of these sorts of statistics. Well, either way, John Dixon, the Sydney-based historian, author and podcaster, puts it like this. He says, in Australia, the UK and the USA, probably elsewhere as well, we have experienced a significant shift in the perception of the value of religion in general and Christianity in particular. 20 or more years ago, a frequent complaint against the faith was that it was too moralistic, holier than thou, or goody two-shoes. Today, it is just as common to hear people say that the problem with the church is that it is immoral, violent, and hateful. What a terrible set of things, adjectives to be known by. Well, how did we get here? No doubt there are a lot of really complex factors involved, and I'm no social scientist, so I'm not going to attempt any kind of sort of detailed analysis, but here are just a few symptoms of where we find ourselves today, and perhaps some contributions to where we are today. Anybody read this book? If you can see it there. 
This uh, is a book written by an American neuroscientist called Sam Harris. He started writing this book the day after 9-11. Now, you can kind of imagine that an atheist starting to write a book the day after 9-11 in the USA, particularly an American atheist, he's, he's going to have some stuff to burn off, right? And probably not alone. But with this book, which literally argues for the end of religious faith, Sam Harris unleashed a new aggressive movement, which has since become called New Atheism. New atheism is really a bunch of recycled assertions, but delivered with a new boldness and invective and vitriol. At the heart of the New Atheist Project is the belief that not only is faith unenlightened, irrational and unreasonable, it is downright dangerous and must be urgently eliminated. Well, Harris's book was soon followed by a flurry of other similar publications, and let's be honest, pretty much similar arguments, including from Richard Dawkins, his well-known book, The God Delusion, from 2006, Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell, 2006, and Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, the year later, 2007, uh, as well as various other contributions from Harris Dawkins and crew since. Now, we're not going to park on this page for too long, but it is worth just kind of hovering our mouse over this just for a moment, to get a taste of some of their claims of these new, very assertive, very aggressive uh, atheists. Harris, for example, writes some of these things. Ideas which divide one group of human beings from another, only to unite them in slaughter, generally have their roots in religion. Intolerance is intrinsic to every creed. Kind of strange because I've read some creeds where I don't really see that. But Religious beliefs are simply beyond the scope of rational discourse. Our, our technical advances, he says, in the art of war have finally rendered our religious differences and hence our religious beliefs antithetical to our survival. Gosh, that's really upping the, upping the ante there, isn't it? He says, religious faith perpetuates man's inhumanity to man. And he goes on to say, how is it that, and this is playing to that, that argument about the unreasonableness and irrationality of faith. How is it that in this one area of our lives, we have convinced ourselves that our beliefs about the world can float entirely free of reason and evidence? And then finally, our world is fast succumbing to the activities of men and women who would stake the future of our species on beliefs that should not survive an elementary school education. Quite a powerful put down. And all of that is just from chapter one. <laughs> well, uh, Dennett uh, follows Harris's claiming that there exists this warfare between science and religion in which religion is the greatest threat, I'm quoting from him here, is the greatest threat to rationality and scientific progress. That's Daniel Dennett. And this is why in, in two weeks' time, as Isaac mentioned, we're going to come back to this idea that somehow faith and science are at war together. And we're honoured to have Professor John Attia 
uh, come and join us for that session two weeks' time, uh, in the morning only, actually, uh, on the 20th of March. And I would encourage you to come along and maybe bring someone along. Uh, John uh, is a, a member and regular preacher over at The Granary in Newcastle, and he is currently laureate professor uh, in the School of Medicine uh, and uh, Epidemiology. Uh, laureate professor is the highest honour which is awarded uh, to professors at Newcastle University. So, as Isaac said, he's, he's, he's smart. Um, and I would encourage you to come as we talk about this apparent um, war that these guys suggest is happening. Well, if we turn then uh, to the well-known Richard Dawkins. Anybody read God Delusion, by the way? Yeah, okay. Dawkins says this sort of thing. He says that not only, and this is one of the key theses of the New Atheists, is that not only is it sort of extremist, fundamentalist religion, which is a danger and a threat to all of humanity, but actually even moderate faith and religion is a threat to humanity. And they make the case by sort of arguing this. Sam Harris says something very similar. He says, uh, Dawkins says, non-fundamentalist sensible religion is making the world safe for fundamentalism by teaching that unquestioned faith is a virtue. Anybody never questioned their faith? And then he goes on to say this. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He also claims that God is a moral monster. These are fighting words. Who's, uh, who's feeling kind of a little bit... I mean, maybe, maybe some of you are feeling like, yeah, that's, that's me, that's where I'm at, that's what I believe, that's what I see. But maybe some others of us feeling a little bit uncomfortable um, with these arguments. Well, just to finish off this quick tour of the New Atheists, uh, this is Christopher Hitchens who seems to want to even outdo Harris, Dawkins and Dennett. And he says this, As I write these words, and as you read them, people of faith are in their different ways planning your and my destruction and the destruction of all hard-won human attainments that I have touched upon. Religion poisons everything. Ouch. Now, it has to be said, that these books do not really construct any arguments that stand up to solid critique. They aim to make people mad and thus motivate the masses to throw off the final vestiges of faith in favour of a presumably benevolent atheism and secularism. Of course, they conveniently overlook that the, fact, the fact that between them, the highly unreligious Hitler, Stalin and Chairman Mao initiated policies, purges and wars that killed a combined 75 to 120 million people. We will never know the true total. More than all the religious wars and acts of violence in history by a vast, vast measure. And while Harris and Co. see all faith as inevitably involving or enabling extremism, their own assertions are framed in a kind of violent rhetoric which itself seems hell-bent on eradicating belief, if not believers. So reading their work, uh, which I've done, uh, feels at times like a bunch of very angry atheists wielding their pitchforks at others they accuse of angrily wielding pitchforks. 
So much so that even other atheist scholars have strongly criticised their work. For example, Michael Ruse, who's a, a British-born Canadian philosopher working in Florida, uh, if you can follow me there, an atheist himself has said that Dawkins, the God delusion, is so bad that it made him ashamed to be an atheist. He's written, as you can see behind me, Dawkins is brazen in his ignorance of philosophy and theology, not to mention the history of science. It is not that the new atheists are having a field day because of the brilliance and novelty of their thinking. Frankly, the material that they are churning out is second rate, and that is a euphemism for downright awful. <clears throat> That's from within <laughs> their own ranks. And uh, Alan Orr, uh, who's not an atheist, uh, he's a theologian, uh, he summed up my own response to reading Dawkins' God Delusion some years back like this. He said, It's one thing to think carefully about religion and conclude that it's dubious. It's another thing to string together anecdotes and exercises in bad philosophy and conclude that one has resolved subtle problems. He said, I wasn't disappointed in the God Delusion because I was shocked by Dawkins' atheism. I was disappointed because it wasn't very good. And if you've read it, maybe you found that yourself as well. Well, whether well-reasoned or not, these works have undoubtedly given voice to a range of grudges and gripes uh, against faith in the 21st century. But that brings us to some other more common and perhaps even more justified reasons that people are losing it. Losing faith, that is. Because I suspect that works like this by the new atheists are less the cause of people losing faith than serving to reinforce the thinking of those who've already rejected faith. Kind of a rallying cry uh, that people who feel the same can rally around. But for the sake of full disclosure, as well as declaring my uh, monopoly demons uh, this morning, I have to confess that I once was also an opponent of faith. And in those days, I probably would have loved those kind of books. Because as I say, they, they'd have reinforced my thinking and helped articulate some kind of clever arguments um, to, to reinforce where I stood. Now, I wasn't uh, as anti-faith as Vitral and Co are, but nevertheless, I was considered myself an atheist, I was anti-faith, and maybe you are too. Or maybe you're not anti-faith, but just not interested in faith. Or maybe you find yourself unconvinced or uncertain, or less certain than you once were. And there's a range of reasons as to why that might be. But before we look at those reasons, let me say firstly, uh, if that's you, any of those things are you, I'm really glad you're here. I don't know that I'll convince you, uh, today or in the series to come. But I'm so glad that you, you're open to the conversation, at least. And I hope we can be open to the conversation as well, those of us on the other side of faith, as I am now. But secondly, can we pause for a moment for me just to ask you why you are where you are at that place in relation to faith? For me, as a young guy who with the arrogance of youth thought I knew it all, it was that I assumed faith was based on a bunch of ancient and outdated myths that we know better now because of modern science. More on that in the coming weeks. Or maybe for you, 
faith has just never seemed relevant to your life. Maybe it just sort of sits outside your worldview, your way of seeing the world. Besides, you think there's so many faiths and religions. Why would we think one of them is true, but the others aren't? And how do you decide? So maybe we just don't. Or maybe for you, it's been a slow drift. You used to believe even a little bit, but life just got busy. And now you wonder kind of if you ever really believed. Or maybe for you, there is a disconnect between what you hear on a Sunday and your life on a Monday. The values seem to kind of clash these days. And quite frankly, you've come to side more with your workmates than your churchmates. Or maybe here's a couple more options. Maybe you just feel let down by the church. Or maybe even let down by God. You feel like you've kept up your side of the bargain. You served, you volunteered, you prayed, you tried your best to be spiritually disciplined. You trained the kids in the way they should go. And when they were older, they still departed from it. And you think, hang on, God, I did my bit and you didn't come through. What about all those Bible promises I was promised you'd deliver on? Or maybe you've been more than let down. Maybe you've been harmed or even hurt by the church or by someone in the church. It's not my story to tell, but my, my own parents left the church as young married people because of, of a bad experience which is why I grew up uh, in an atheistic environment. And to this day, out of deference, except out of deference uh, to my faith and occasional visits, therefore, my parents have never been back to church because of that experience. Maybe you've been hurt in some way too. Maybe the hurt you experienced was dark and destructive. The scars have never healed. And what should have been a house of healing and hope became a place of horror and hell on earth. Well, if that's you, then I apologize on behalf of the church for that pain and for the shame that you've carried because of it. Sadly, as we saw from the, the Royal Commission into institutional responses to uh, child abuse, the church owes a lot of people a lot of apologies, and a lot more besides. In church speak, we call this repentance. We should be pretty good at it. Oftentimes, we, we just demand it of other people. But today, I repent on behalf of the church for that harm that's been caused for what that is worth coming from me. Um, the abuse scandal, which is likely century centuries old but came to the light through courageous investigative journalism reports and inquiries has shone the light on just how deeply the church needs to repent and own up to the harm it is allowed there are of course bad apples everywhere but there is no excuse for committing or covering up such abuse when it comes to light especially in the church more than anywhere a couple of weeks ago i, I spoke here uh, from a well-known passage in matthew's account of the life of jesus Matthew 18, 1 to 5, where Jesus brings a little child amongst the disciples to teach them about greatness, God's way. And in which he says, whoever welcomes one such child welcomes me. In the very next verse, which we didn't look at that time, Jesus says perhaps some of the strongest words in, uh, recorded, ever written down from Jesus. 
he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it's better to have a huge stone tied around his neck and be thrown into the ocean. Now, the Greek word for to stumble is skandalizo, from which we get scandal. This can be read literally as whoever scandalizes a little one like this in my name. We don't know for sure that Jesus was talking about a particular kind of scandalization. But we do know for sure that the child sexual abuse in the church has caused many little ones to stumble, to lose their faith, their mental well-being, their physical health, and in some cases, their life. But apart from causing direct harm, and, and I should say, if this has raised issues for you, and, and you probably weren't primed for it, if this is triggering anything for you, then I apologise for that as well. Um, and please make sure that you reach out and, and have someone support you um, uh, as soon as, as you need it. Uh, if that's right now, uh, then please reach out. But apart from even, even causing direct harm, the church can also and has also at times, I think, caused indirect harm by making false promises on behalf of God. This is a, a much subtler one. This has been true of what's been called the, the prosperity, go- doctrine, uh, prosperity gospel or prosperity doctrine. The idea, put cruelly, of the health and wealth gospel, that God wants to make you rich, healthy and happy if you just have enough faith. Now, apart from being an insult uh, to the dozens, even hundreds of followers of Jesus in the developing world that I've met, and hundreds of millions more that I haven't, whose faith puts mine to shame and who still live in desperate poverty, such a gospel sets people everywhere up for disappointment when God doesn't deliver on this false promise made in his name. But I have a theory And my theory is that even in many of our churches, which have rightly shied away from this distortion of Scripture, we've still preached what I call prosperity light. And that is that if you pray enough, if you live well according to the moral standards of Scripture, as you understand them, you hold on to any number of so-called promises of God, that things will go well for you. The problem is that one of the clearest promises that Jesus gave in Scripture was in this world, you will have trouble. It takes too lightly the fact that we live in a fallen world where stuff, bad stuff happens to good people. No matter how hard at times we pray. Where 100% of us die sooner or later. No matter how much we pray. No matter how much faith we work up and have. But the point is this, Jesus never promised an easy ride. And Easter is a reminder that Jesus' faith cost him his life. Likewise, he calls his followers to die to themselves and take up their cross daily, not as a good luck charm, but as a sign of solidarity with his suffering and self-sacrifice to carry that forward in the world today, even when it costs and hurts us to do so. That doesn't change just because we pluck Bible verses out of their context and put them in nice writing on a nice pretty background and stick it on our fridge. We don't have time to go into this fully, but just to say, if you feel let down by God because God didn't come through through for you, it's possible that we have made 
a false promise to you on God's behalf. And maybe it was even a preacher like me. Maybe it was me. And while I'm preaching about preaching, sorry, this is getting heavy, isn't it? While I'm preaching about preaching, often our preaching has portrayed God as a vindictive, outraged, intolerant God standing ever ready to condemn anyone who doesn't get with his program. This is the God that the new atheists reject. In fact, in some ways, this God sounds a little like the new atheists themselves, outraged, intolerant, and ready to condemn anyone who doesn't get with their program. Perhaps that's unfair. But it is also what makes me so sad about the new atheists' agenda. And it also makes me so sad about other people who reject that kind of God. Because when they reject that God as the God they don't believe in, I think I wouldn't believe in that God either. Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking in this series at faith, hope and love in a world where such things seem increasingly understrayed. As we lead up to Easter, this series will suggest that when we strip away a bunch of baggage and go back to us, the central affirmations of the Christian faith, we discover in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth a God in which we find a faith we can be full of, a hope we can hold on to, and a love that we can live for hand on heart. That we find revealed in Jesus Christ a God we can believe in. And today, as we just start this journey together, I just want to briefly draw attention to a passage in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi uh, to set us up for the series ahead. Come with me for a moment to Rome in the early 60s, not the 1960s, the the 0060s, we might say. Now, if you're wondering, uh, the city of Philippi, nothing to do with filling pies. Uh, It's a city that was named after the father of Alexander the Great. Sorry, it was a city named by the father of Alexander the Great by the father of Alexander the Great. In other words, he said, I hereby name this city in honour of me. No self-esteem issues, obviously, but this was not unusual in Greek and Roman culture because there, honour was one of the highest virtues and humility was a term of scorn reserved for slaves and captives vanquished in battle. This was a culture which sought glory in battle, honour in achievement, and to see one's name etched in the annals of history, or even better, in stone, because it tended to wear better and uh, uh, have a longer shelf life than um, many annals. So by the time of Jesus and Paul, Roman emperors had ascended to new heights in self-honouring beyond even naming cities after themselves, which they still had a particular penchant for. Now, the emperors of Rome declared themselves as living gods, which the population should bow down and worship. It's sure got to stroke your ego when you're having a mental health day, uh, taking time off from butchering barbarians in the far reaches of the empire. But here in the heart of Roman Philippi, like all around the region, was a young church, In this instance, it met in the house of and was probably led by a wealthy merchant woman called Lydia. And as Paul writes a warm and heartfelt letter to this group who'd gather in her home, probably from prison in Rome, 
He copies and pastes a passage, possibly a poem or a hymn, which was already in existence and already known to these believers in Philippi and further abroad. And this poem or hymn, if it is that, demonstrates the stark difference between the gods of Rome and Greece and the God that Lydia and her house church were worshipping in Philippi. So much so that scholars have called this particular passage not only the heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians, but also even perhaps the heart of the whole New Testament. That is, all of the writings about Jesus from his eyewitnesses and early followers. Leading up to this particularly poetic uh, passage, Paul is encouraging his readers to stand apart from the cultural crowd and set aside their claims to glory and their selfish ambitions and instead to follow after the example of Jesus. And of this Jesus, Paul writes, He though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. And here we have this idea of voluntary humiliation. This would have made no sense to many who saw slaves and servants as the despicable lower class. And humility, not as a virtue, but a vice to be avoided in seeking, striving after honor for oneself. And here we have this idea of someone who's in nature God, emptying themselves of that honor and that glory and taking the nature of a slave. And then he goes on to say, and being uh, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the passage goes on from here for sure, but we're going to click the pause button for a moment at this point because in this remarkable passage, we see not the vindictive, outraged, intolerant God that neither the new atheists nor I nor almost anyone here, I think, actually believes in. We see not a God who uses power for his own ends, his own advantage, his own honor and glory. We see not a God who needs to have others worship him to stroke his ego or gratify an eternal need for affirmation and acclamation. We see not a human ruler grasping for glory, seeking to ascend from earth to the heavens. We see not an ambitious authoritarian tyrant mobilizing troops or tanks or terror to satisfy their own lust for lost glory and a long gone empire. Likewise, we see not a God who is what Dawkins calls a moral monster. Rather, we see a divine scandal on a divine scale. What I mean by that that is that in Jesus Christ, we see a God who does not rule according to the God rules. Because what God would surrender their glory? What God would give up power and honor and praise to take the form and nature of a servant, a doulos, a slave? What God would choose to become human? Since the dawn of time, it's been the other way around. Humans wanting to become gods and sometimes kidding themselves it was actually the case. And what God, having humbled himself by becoming a mere man, 
would then willingly choose to suffer the ultimate humiliation, death, especially death, naked and bleeding and broken on a Roman cross, a tortuous and terrible death reserved for revolutionaries and runaway slaves. But the revolutionary nature of this ungodlike God in Philippi and beyond can't be overestimated. As the Bible scholar Richard Mellick notes, the impact of crucifixion on the Philippians would be great. No Roman could be subjected to such a death. And the Jews took it as a sign that the victim was cursed. The cross, so dear to Paul and other devout Christians, was an embarrassment to many. That in itself demonstrates the extent to which Jesus went. So revolutionary was this idea, so counterculturally appealing that this fledgling faith, less than 30 years old at the time of this letter, would soon spread throughout the empire and throughout the known world. This was a God that they could believe in, a God who wasn't selfish and after their own ambitions, a God who'd become like them, who'd suffered like they suffered, who'd felt the humiliation that many servants, slaves and the lower classes felt on a daily basis. This was a God that they could believe in back then. And I put to you that it's a God that we can believe in today. But whether or not you accept the idea that Jesus was God, and Paul had and Lydia had and I came to too, this belief, then perhaps we can at least agree that this is a truly remarkable set of claims about a God. And this is definitely not a vindictive, angry, outraged God waiting to condemn all who don't get with his game plan. This is not a God of violence and genocide. In fact, rather than committing violence, this God voluntarily succumbed to violence in solidarity with all who suffer it. Furthermore, according to even the earliest Christian thinkers, In doing so, God in Christ sought to take that violence upon himself and into himself to overcome it and to extinguish its power through his crucifixion and his resurrection. And nor is this God a God who calls the faithful to violence and vitriol and hatred against others, as Harrison Co. claim or as Marley's friends have come to believe. In fact, this passage and elsewhere, we see the exact opposite is true. The precise point that Paul is making here by including this poem is to encourage the Philippians followers to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is, to give up glory and selfish ambition, as I said, to surrender their rights, to live out the love that is implicit in this divine descent into the dirt of our everyday lives. As Gordon Fee writes, the whole narrative offers the highest expression of God's love. He says, urged on, we'll come to this quote in a moment, but he says, uh, he urges on the Philippian believers, not to mention that it's the ultimate example of not looking to one's own interests, but also to the interests of others. And far from being a moral monster, as Dawkins puts it, as Fee says of God, we see that in Christ Jesus, God has shown his true nature. 
To be equal with God means to pour himself out for the sake of others and to do so by taking the role of a slave. Hereby, he not only reveals the character of God, that is Jesus, reveals the character of God, but also reveals what it means for us to be created in God's image, to bear his likeness and to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It means taking the role of the slave for the sake of others. And hence it was here in this passage and others like it throughout the New Testament that as an anti-faith atheist, I found an ethic I could live for, a faith I could hold on to, and a God I could believe in. But how about you? What picture of God do you carry in your head? Of course, there are other parts of the Christian scriptures from which you can draw impressions about the God of the Bible. And some of those impressions raise difficult questions that we don't have time to address here today. But Christians, since the earliest eyewitnesses to Jesus, have staked their lives and given their lives at the stakes on the fervent belief that the Christian God is most clearly revealed and defined by Jesus. He is, as Paul writes elsewhere, the visible image of the invisible God, the one in whom all of God's fullness dwells. To put it another way, Jesus is like the ultimate fact check of our concept of God. And if your concept of God doesn't align with Jesus, then it's very likely a false image, maybe even a false God. So what image of God do you carry in your head? Our image of God matters. Firstly, because if we get it wrong, then the God we find ourselves either following or rejecting may turn out to be the wrong God. But secondly, because for those of us who identify with faith, belief shapes behavior. We become, as the saying goes, like what we worship. Don't believe me? Well, believe God is a vindictive, angry, intolerant God. And guess how we become? Even, apparently, if we're atheists and don't believe in that God that we keep going on about. But believe that God is self-sacrificing, self-surrendering, servant-like, and you become, well, maybe sometimes still vindictive, angry, and intolerant, but at least uh, we're perhaps on a better path to getting not only our understanding of God right, but a better chance of overcoming our shadow side, our descent into darkness. And all of that brings me back where we began. Uh, Monopoly has taught me that left to my own devices, or perhaps if money was my God, uh, then I could be selfish, greedy, and even devilish. Very likely my dark side would, would dominate even more than it does currently. And from Mali, I learned that those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we've got a lot of work to do. Perhaps we've got a lot of repenting to do. And we've got a lot of reflecting to do on the image of God that we carry in our heads. And whether that image of the God that we proclaim to the world aligns with the God on the cross of Easter. Not a God of hate. Not a moral monster. A God who loved us to death. Even death on a cross. Well, next week, we carry on with this series. And we're talking some more about faith. We're talking about faith, is it for real or are those who are full of it uh, 
full of it? And how might we be genuinely full of it? Faith in this God. And then the week after, as we've said already, uh, faith and science, best frenemies, with uh, Professor John Attia from uh, Newcastle University. So I hope you'll join us for this ongoing conversation. And if you're watching online or on Catch Up, I hope you'll tune in again next week as well. As we take this, this forward, what I hope will be an honest conversation around these tough questions. But here, as we wrap up for now, are some takeaway questions to think about in the coming hours uh, or through the week with your Bible study group, your life group, or just in your own time. What picture of God do you carry with you? And how do you think that picture was formed? Where did it come from? Why is it that you have that particular picture of God? Secondly, how does your picture of God affect your faith? Whether you have faith or whether you don't have faith, might your picture of God be keeping you from faith or keeping you from going deeper in faith or keeping from feeling more free and great, grateful and thankful in your faith? And finally, how does Jesus act as a fact check for your faith and your picture of God? Let me pray. Lord, we know that there's so much more that we could say about you than what we've been able to touch on today. We know the, script, the Christian scripture gives us this picture of you as Father, Son, and Spirit. But we know also that these, these eyewitnesses and early followers of yours argued with their lives that it was Jesus who gives us the clearest picture of who you are in your fullness of character and essence. And wherever we are, are today in relation to faith, whether we're not interested, whether we're a long way away, whether we're anti, or whether we're exploring, taking tentative, kind of inquisitive steps, whether it's kind of grown cold, we used to believe and we used to have a fire in our belly about it, but lately it's kind of gone off the boil. Wherever we're at on that journey, my prayer that you'd make, us, make yourself known to us. That in Jesus we would see an unbelievable God who is actually the most believable God. Unbelievable only because you don't like act like the gods, the way gods should act. Unbelievable only because you are not the God that the new atheists sort of hold up as straw man God. Believable because you care so much. You care so much that you came into our world, died on a cross, rose again by your mighty power to set us free for faith from our sin from our dark side to know and follow a God worth following give us faith we pray Lord I pray in Jesus name